0: Song number 714, I Know Whom I've Believed. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me He made known, nor why unworthy you got to read the punctuation in the hymns, too—why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for His own. I know not how this saving faith to me He did impart nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. Think about that. How is it that believing in his word brought peace to your heart? We talk about this all the time in Christian church. We talk about how you got to put your faith in Christ, and this is what saves you for all eternity. This is what makes you a child of God that changes your entire nature. Well, what does that mean exactly? How does that work? I just start believing, and somehow that belief turns into something real and true. Well, even this hymn writer is asking that question. How? Believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing us of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. There it is, that same question. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Now, if you sing that song, And you think about those words, and don't worry so much about whether you should say believe it, (laughs) and just think about the words, there's where it is. This is the reality of being Christian. It's all summed up in four beautiful verses, so poetically written, with perfect punctuation and meter and timing, and I'm going to stand here and talk at you for the next 20 minutes or so and probably never get as succinct a point across as that hymn just did. Love the hymns, please, and the beautiful songs that Emily and her team bring us. Those words mean so much. Don't get lost in whether you can sing it or not, (laughs) or at least worry about singing it well after you've had the experience of the meaning within the rich truth. I'm convinced that the Bible and the Word of God are meant to be proclaimed out loud that we got to say it, we got to hear it, we got to feel the vibration, and the rhythm of it. Enough said. A little bonus sermon there for you. But, in fact, part very much of today's message, would you turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bible? We're going to read starting at verse 5, and in your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1147, 1147. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, We may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee." The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now I want to visit that passage for just a minute before we move to the to the topic at hand. It's all tied together. We're continuing our journey through the book by Frank Viola, Insurgents, and its meaning in particular for us as Christian believers and how we apply it. And what Paul is saying here, I really take comfort reading this particular passage because it's comforting to me to know that the great apostle Paul mixes his metaphors too and kind of rambles too. And I'm grateful for that because he's mixing metaphors here and I'm not going to contend with the word of God by, you know, criticizing the, 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 use of words and metaphors. But I will say that I would prefer to stick with one in this case in order to get the meaning of what Paul is writing about. So he jumps from talking about tents as though we're living in a dwelling, and then he sort of talks about clothing. So I'm going to use the clothing metaphor to try to paraphrase what I believe Paul was just saying to us. What Paul was saying was, is that he— He's saying that because we've been born again and because we've become children of God through Christ, we've been given a a sort of undergarment that is our new sort of white robe that represents our glory when we enter into God's presence someday. We've We've been given this undergarment that is our new tent, okay? But what we are in this human existence during this time of corruption that is the, the fallen humanity is we, we're wearing our outer clothing over it. Now, I don't want you to start trying to picture everybody you see in the sanctuary running around in their underwear, okay? But to illustrate the point, the reason we're not running around in our underwear is because we have these outer garments that we wear in order to be acceptable in this world. But what Paul is saying is, is that these outer garments are like a burden to us. They're limiting our ability to be entirely like Christ. And so we carry them like a burden. You're walking around in this outer garment, this tent that is your earthly tent, but underneath it, you are already changed. Okay, if you don't remember anything else we talk about today, would you remember that? Because you were born again in Christ, because the faith that you know you believe is true, but you don't understand how it works, has transformed you. You have trusted Christ, and in regard for your trust, God has given you a new nature a new sense of who you are that is given through the Holy Spirit so that when God looks at you, he sees the same sort of person he sees when he looks at his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And that is evident in the garment that you wear now under this outer shell, this outer clothing. And so what we look forward to then is the day when Christ returns, when we leave behind this outer garment. And I love it because, you know, in all the Left Behind movies and all those variations of the story of the rapture, people disappear and their clothes are left behind. That's not too bad. I'll go with that. They leave behind the outer garments and they ascend into their resurrected nature to be present with Christ, sharing his nature entirely without the burden of the outer garment. But what we are talking about today is how that's already begun. We're already part of something new. Now, in the days when Paul was writing the stories and the letters and preaching and teaching the way he was, there were basically two kinds of people in the Jewish mind. Now, before I go in depth, I do want to remind you that one of the things that you should always remember when reading the New Testament is that it's written to Christians. It's, it's written to the family of God. Okay. There is a tendency among us Christians to think that the rest of the world should abide by what it says, too. They don't have the same underwear we have. Well, there's a quote, right? They don't have the same undergarment. They haven't been transformed, and therefore we shouldn't expect them to get it or to think that we're being anything other than legalistic and judgmental when we demand that they act like we can't even act. Okay. So remember when you read the New Testament that you're reading something that's written to you as Christian believers. And in the mind of those early Christian believers, there were basically two kinds of people the good ones and the bad ones. Or as they would say, the self righteous, the hierarchical sort of Jewish mindset of religious piety, or the Gentile. And so from their point of view, if you weren't a Jew, you weren't righteous, you weren't good, you weren't decent, you weren't proper, you were outside of civil religious society. But then there are the Gentiles who are people that are vile and corrupt and and uncivilized. And if you're a student of history, as I am, then you probably have learned, too, that we've had a problem throughout human history of thinking that some people are savages because they're not like us, and we have a tendency to oppress them and abuse them, which is more vile in God's sight than I have time to talk about. But for the sake of our discussion today, what we want to understand is is that people have dumbed down a very complex humanity, and a human relationship with the creator into two sides. You're a Jew or you're a Gentile. You're a liberal or you're a conservative. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican. You're black. You're white. You are one or the other, and that's all there is to it. And Paul introduces a concept to people who think in those terms that literally blew their minds, that literally made them have to go into a sort of mental breakdown for a minute. Paul says, no, actually, as sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, you are a unique race. You're not Jew or Gentile. You're not black or white. You're not Republican or Democrat. You're not conservative or liberal. You are the ecclesia. That's a Greek word that we've translated to church, but we can't use the word church anymore without it having all kinds of other meanings that confuse us. Heck, I even caught myself saying it. I was talking to my granddaughter right before we got started with worship, and I said, let's go to church. We say that like we think we know what it means, but church, in the context that I used with my granddaughter, means an activity. See, we have a problem because we have a tendency to take the word ecclesia and translate it to church and then use the word church to describe everything except what the Apostle Paul meant for us to understand it to be, which is a third race a third kind of humanity, a third kind of creation. People who look the same on the outside, but now underneath the outer garment, they are, in fact, a new creation, a new kind of humanity. And the only thing that keeps you from recognizing that is the outer garment, the outer clothing, or the tent that looks like the world's tent. So the whole purpose, then, of this This part of being insurgents is to recognize that the insurgency is made up of people who are citizens of a third race or another kingdom. We're no longer the people we once were. We're not Gentiles or Jews. We're not any of those things anymore. We are, in fact, people of a covenant made through Jesus Christ. The ecclesia, which is a description of where people gather together because they all have affinity around this new identity, the body of Christ, the people of this unique race. Later on, Paul writes in Ephesians and in Colossians some profound words that you could chew on for the rest of your life. Describing how, in fact, what God has done is created a unique race through his unique being, Adam, or the Adam, the people that God created in God's own image. He has maintained this descendancy, this lineage of Adam, all the way through to the present and to the end of the age. And what God's intention for us is, is that we would return to that identity, that we would even return home to a place we call Eden. And the people who live there will be these third-race people, this unique ecclesia, and the place will be the kingdom, and the king will be Jesus Christ. And Jesus made this happen because he left that unique identity in order to take on our troubled, tainted identity. And yet he lived through it without being like us. He lived through it by being similar to us in every way, except that he never sinned. He never turned against God. He never once questioned God's goodness, righteousness, and perfect holiness. He never reduced God in his estimation. And so, by being the perfect example of humanity transformed into the image of God again, he then is the one and only person righteous enough to cancel our debt to God for being disobedient, disingenuous, disrespectful, hurtful, and hateful belittling God and thinking, daring to think that we were made in God's image, but that's because God looks like us, right? That's what sin is. It turns out that the boundless, incomprehensible love of Christ demands a response from us. We can't take the gift without returning the favor, and yet the enemy of God has turned the church, that isn't the ecclesia, but the organized religions and dom- denominations and very other, various other iterations of what it means to be Christian. He's, he's convinced those people that they are the image of Christ and that they are the image of God, when in fact what they've done is they've reduced God to the image of the outer garment, and then we come to worship in that spirit. But the Father loves us anyway, and he sends us these radical voices that remind us that we are not who we think we are, but we are, in fact, who he thinks we are. And the question is, does he think that we are still the fallen race, or are we new creatures in Christ? Because he sees you exactly the way you are. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is what's he see today? A person who goes to church, or does he see the ecclesia? Does he see the brothers and sisters of his son, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the master of this kingdom populated by the third race, the ecclesia? So what Frank is telling us in his book about the insurgency is, is that that's right there why we're in insurgency. I'll tell you a little story. I was thinking about this when we were singing. I was thinking about this when we were trying to decide what was going to happen first in worship today. I was thinking about this when I blew out my candlestick and debated about which was more religious, a lighter or a brass thing, the imitation brass thing. Right. I was thinking about all of this because my mind kind of races that way, if you hadn't noticed. And and I was thinking, you don't take church very seriously sometimes because you goof off in the middle of it all, and people are expecting a performance. They're expecting everything to be just so, or at least you're afraid they do. And I remember 20-something years ago when I was an associate pastor, and I was frequently accused of being subversive and irreverent. This is true. My family will tell you. There were some really hostile attacks on my character because it seemed that I was irreverent and even subversive. And I know now with the benefit of 20-something years of wisdom, I'm just an insurgent and I can't help it. I'm just a disruptor. I'm not boasting in that. I wouldn't be that if Christ didn't allow it, because I'm going to tell you where his sacred things are concerned, and the Lord is very protective. And what I realized a long time ago, and I still believe to this day, is it's not really a good idea to take yourself too seriously, but by all means, take the Lord seriously, and the Lord's work seriously, and the Lord's word seriously. Just don't take yourself too seriously. And I probably have perfected that to my own detriment. It's a bit of a fault, really. It's a bit of a weakness. But I I say with, with sincerity, if you ever get the idea that I think this is about me, God forbid. And when I look at you, I see people that we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. We want the love of God in Christ to be expressed through us first in loving reverence to God the Father, and then in loving, redemptive grace towards our brothers and sisters in the Christian family, and then finally expressed in openness and receptivity with grace and love for those outside the Christian family. Those are the things that matter. Those are the things that matter. And that's why it doesn't matter if I blow out the candlestick and talk about it before we worship. It's just a point that I'd like you to take home, that that I'm a captive of Christ. Frank says in his book, using a quote from one of his favorite authors, a guy named T. Austin Sparks, he says, we're basically captivated by Christ. He's not saying captured, but captivated. That, that we become obsessed with Christ. That that we're so captivated. Look, you've been in love at some point in your life, or you will be. And even if it's just 15-year-old puppy love, you will be captivated, captivated by the object of your affection. For a little while, you'll look kind of silly because of being captivated by this love. And this is exactly what we are to be when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ that he is in fact the object of our affection who captivates our attention. And so that's why we don't take ourselves too seriously, right? Because we get up here or we get out there and we come to adore him because we just can't help it. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. I wrote this in my notes and I questioned my judgment about this, but I remember when, in 2020, I adopted a German shepherd named Bella from the animal shelter. My objective was to leave someone with Ruthie when she was by herself in the house during these weird times who would definitely protect her. By the way, I got what I wanted in triplicate. But that relationship started with me, a stranger, going to a place to meet another stranger, a dog named Bella, who was already three years old. And in dog speak, that means she was pretty grown up. And so this whole thing was a real wild card. I mean, this could backfire big time. This is an 80-pound dog with a maw that's like this big, right? You know, this, this is a big dog. And, and my question is, is what are you thinking is going to come of this? And then I just sort of took her home and I started by showing her the boundaries. I, I would take her on the leash and walk her around the boundaries of the yard. And inside the house, I would show her boundaries and I would introduce her to people in the house. And all the while, my firm hand is on her and I'm thinking, I'm hoping, you know, I can control some unexpected outburst here. And so I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm thinking that with gentle love and discipline, I can rewrite this animal's paradigm. She was surrendered to the animal shelter because she wasn't being cared for properly. For all I know, she's nuts. And instead of protecting my daughter, she's going to eat my daughter. I don't know. But what happened and I hope you'll see why I chose this illustration. What happened was is that she came to adore me. Bella adores me. <laughs> I am her Jesus. Please don't take that out of context. I'm saying this dog is obsessed with me. They'll tell you. She's obsessed with me. I'm going to go home after church and she's going to jump all over me, knock me off my feet and love all over me because I was gone for so long. And she almost forgot what I smell like. And you know what's funny? All of that happened because I took her out of her bad situation, brought her to a better situation, and then reframed her life around disciplines that made her feel loved and cared for. You getting the message? We become new people. She was an outdoor dog who was not cared for properly and abused, and she became an indoor dog who's a member of the family. And she takes that role very seriously. And heaven help you if you threaten my daughter, Ruthie. Because love took her in. Love redeemed her old existence and gave her a new identity. Love created for her a whole new paradigm. And that thing that love did that was the most important was disciplines that ordered her life around the love and the grace and the acceptance that made her not only obedient, but eager to obey. Holy smokes, now we're starting to get down where the rubber meets the road, aren't we? Several of us took a wonderful training yesterday that I hope everybody here takes someday soon. And it was a training that, interestingly enough, revolved around obedience, about sharing your faith and teaching others to read the Bible in a productive, fulfilling way so that you could be obedient to the Master. Because guess what he's done? He's taken us out of a bad situation, brought us to a new situation, taught us a whole new set of disciplines and boundaries, and then for love's sake demands our loyalty. And then rewards that loyalty with cuddles and hugs and kisses and treats and love and medical care and food aplenty and all the things you need to be okay. Not just if you're a German Shepherd, even. If you're a people of a third race, of a third nature, and that's really the point that Frank asks of us, are we people who go to church or are we the ecclesia, members of Christ's household who have molded our identity around that family that we've become a part of? who have conformed ourselves for this love's sake and accepted and adopted these obedient disciplines for love's sake. So that not only are we pleasing to the master, but we just can't help it because we adore the master. That's the nature of the ecclesia. But many of us have gone to church all our lives and consider church an essential part of every community, and yet what we mean, whether we're telling the truth to ourselves or not, is an activity, a social identity, a group affinity, a place where we have things in common with other people, starting with our shared religion. So I close with these questions, and I want you to answer silently in your heart, honestly. And if you want, take the notes home with you or read them when they come in your email tomorrow and ask them seriously in your prayer and meditation. Is being a member of a local church and attending services the same thing as being the ecclesia? Does going to church and being a (laughs) member— I told you I was thinking about churches that I've served over the years. I remember a guy telling me, gosh, this was 27 years ago, told me that he was ready to to go ahead and have his membership moved to the church because this was a pastor he liked. And the more we talked, the more I realized that it was 1997, and he was telling me that for the first time since 1967, he was ready to move his membership to that church. Fred, has anybody ever done that? Peggy, has anybody ever done that? He hadn't mem- he hadn't made himself a member or joined that church since 1967, and he decided in 97 it was okay to be a member of that church now because he was a pastor he liked. That is not the ecclesia, my dearly beloved. You know what? That church is now a private residence, just for the record. Does the time you spend in the local church or associating with church friends constitute a manifestation of the ecclesia? In other words, are you doing church, doing religion, or are you the body of Christ, the ecclesia? How do you think the church became so institutionalized right down to the local level? Just think about it. How far has your experience with the Lord drifted from Ecclesia. Are you ready to be the body of Christ again? Are you ready to be the family of God? Are you ready to mold yourself according to obedience and discipline? Because love demands it and you just can't help it. Are you ready to hang out with other people who are driven by that same motive? Let's pray that that happens. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Change our natures. If we're feeling convicted, Lord, let's stew in our own juices for a while. It'll be okay, right? Lord, we can handle it. You'll take care of us. You'll get us where we need to be. We trust you, Lord. And as we covenant together once more around your table, let us be in a covenant that becomes ecclesia. Amen. (laughs)